G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our round one review. And as usual with the opening to an AFL season, plenty of surprises, plenty of controversy, plenty of upsets. Very, very unpredictable. If we have as many uh, surprises as have been thrown up in the first weekend, we're in for one belter of an AFL season. We've got AFLW to wrap up too. As I say, very good evening to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Oof. A round completed, and I feel as though we're 15 games in. I've aged this weekend, seen great close football, both of our teams and nail biters. Uh, upsets, as you said, you've almost had half a season of headlines in one week. Great stuff. And, of course, AFLW also at the pointy end of the season providing great interest as well. So I'm loving it, Rowan. Loving it. I've worked up something of an appetite today. I've been too busy to even eat. And uh, I know the, um, they're probably not open for much longer. But if I've got time after we record, I'm going to uh, tear off down to a certain establishment in Albert Park and pick up the finest of foods, Finey. What am I talking about? Uh, to quote Zachary Smith from Lost in Space, never fear, Andrews is here. Well, he used to say Dr. Smith is here. But if you have not eaten today and you're not in a position or inclined to prepare yourself dinner, why not avail yourself of a burger made with the loving care of your own family kitchen? 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers, 82 years young. You don't stay in that game for very long if you're not good. 82 years, I can't imagine there's an operation in Melbourne that's older in the burger business because there's none better, Andrews. You could be uh, quoting Zachary Smith from the Gold Coast Suns, uh, originally Gold Coast Suns and then Geelong and now back at the Gold Coast Suns. And if Andrews hamburgers ever expand <laughs> beyond the Victorian border, on tipping the Gold Coast might be a pretty good location for one of their lovely establishments. Probably a good location too if you're after some home renovations, fine. Well, you'd love a Nick Spartel's West Point property built home anywhere on this planet. But if you're in the southeast Melbourne suburbs and you've got a block of land that is high in value, but maybe not a property that's high in value to match that land, why not go to the absolute eye for detail specialist in West Point properties. Nick Spartels, he's a Carlton man. He, well, I was going to say he wouldn't be too disappointed, but they're probably sick of losing round one. But you'll never be sick of living in a house that he's built from West Point properties. Uh, lovely plugs both. We're about to wrap up each of the nine AFL men's games in detail. Just very quickly before we do that, Fanny, I did make a note to bring this up off the top of the show. You're always loath to 
uh, may be early crow after just one round of a season. And we've become used in recent years to seeing a, a faster, more open and slightly higher scoring brand of football in the early rounds. But uh, you couldn't help but notice, even in the first seven games of this round, we had no fewer than five quarters in which teams kicked either seven or eight goals. And uh, I don't know about you, but that made me really uh, hark back to the olden days of football with some uh, freer scoring and some real burst football taking place. So, yes, it's early days, but uh, that is some fairly uh, promising signs, I think, if higher scoring is something you want to see. Your thoughts on that quickly? Well, everything from scoring to open play, less stoppages. I think everything that the fans want and certainly the rule makers have been trying to alter the rules to accommodate, I feel after a very short sample, you're spot on, the pendulum is finally swinging back in the right direction. Finally. You know, it's for so many years it's just been you know, death by a thousand cuts of slowly, slowly taking the fizz out of the game. It looks like it's been aerated. All right. Well, fingers crossed on that one. But uh, certainly um, the trends were good and some great games to open the new season. Let's talk about them in detail right now. On Footyology, wrap around. We kicked off at the MCG Thursday evening with the uh, long traditional season opener, Richmond Carlton, and similar result to what we've become used to, but a superior game. I thought uh, one of the better Richmond Carlton games I can remember for a long time. And I tell you what was novel for me, uh, finding on a slightly self-indulgent note, actually being at the footy. Geez, it was great to be back and uh, great to be sitting in the press box again Great to be part of a 50,000-strong crowd and great to go to the post-match press conference too where I was able to grill the likes of Damien Hardwick and David Teague. Great to be back, as Doug Elliott used to say, for the start of every new season on World of Sport. In the end, a 25-point win to the Tigers. 15-15, defeating Carlton. 11-14, 80. Jack Rewalt leading... The march for the Tigers, four goals. He had his radar well and truly on on Thursday evening. Two each to Castagna, Martin, Rioli and Art. Singles the rest. And for the Blues, two each to Oscar McDonald, the, who actually came on a substitute and uh, managed a pair of goals. Harry Mackay to Gibbons to singles the rest. And uh, it was sort of ironic in the finish that this game finished uh, with a larger margin than last year's game between these two sides did. And yet, unlike that game in which Richmond blew the Blues away early on and were never going to lose, uh, Carlton were a real chance in this game until really late in the piece. And one of those games, Finey, of course, you don't like losing, but I think Carlton definitely came away with some positives. And the Tigers did too, because they withstood the challenge from a team that was pretty souped up and was in good form. And, uh, of course, the pick of them all, Dustin Martin. What more is there to say about that man? But a fantastic game by him, 31 disposals, couple of goals, and I think four, no fewer than four goal assists. He reigned supreme on the big occasion. 
once again. 49,000 there at the MCG. What would you make of it, Finey? It's funny, you know, it, it was very much in the sort of uh, margin and result sphere of the blueprint that we've had so often over the last decade with these two teams, but it was different. And I guess the, the further away the game is, the more you just remember the margin and the win, but it was far more than that. I think we mentioned on our TV Twitter show on Friday night, we spoke a bit about Harry McKay, but he showed it for me. It's a, you know, it's a great positive because he showed that he's going to be a premium AFL forward for many years to come. But in the short term, it's just the lack of composure when he played on in the last quarter and a couple of quick snaps and shots that I think he could have taken a little bit more care with. And the bright future would have been a shining presence because he really could have spearheaded them to a win that no one would have begrudged them. In the end, 43 players fought out a great game and Dustin Martin went and won it. He's an extraordinary footballer. He put the Arctic Jets on. The last quarter demanded a hero. There were no surprises that it was him. And he has a will to, not a will to win. I think every player has a strong will to win. He has a will to impose himself on winnable games and succeeds in doing that like no player I've ever seen. So we are going, we are in the era of between now and when he hangs up his boots, the question most are asked around pubs and even on mainstream footy programs and the better football programs like these ones, like ours, is he the greatest of all time? Because every time he steps out and does what he did on Thursday night, it's a, another tick in that column from where I sit. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. <clears throat> you know, I think a real important moment in that discussion is him winning his third Norm Smith medal last October. But, uh, yeah, I, I think in terms of all-timers, um, he's starting to creep up into that uh, league, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and I think if you were to compile a highlights reel, it's amazing how many of his goals are similar, isn't it? The show of strength, the fending off of an opponent and the snap over the shoulder. I mean, um, what, a, what a beautiful judge of a goal he is. What a beautiful kick at goal he is, uh, even from the set shot or in general play. Plenty of pluses elsewhere too for the Tigers. Um, one guy who really impressed me, and again is one of those players who I think has crept up on the competition, Jack Graham. I thought he was outstanding for the Tigers. Uh, did ask Damien Hardwick about him at the uh, post-game press conference, and you observed this yourself, Finey, on our show on uh, Friday evening. Uh, it's that aerobic running capacity he has. It, it doesn't... Um, even that doesn't sort of strike you in the face because he's a strongly built guy. And you look at him and you think, well, this guy wouldn't necessarily be a beast of a runner, but he is. And Kane Lambert's another one. And as Damien Hardwick said, these are the guys who are really prospering in the modern football environment. So Graham is an absolute star for the Tigers. Noah Bolter, uh, again, taking another step in his development as a key defender. And the other names we've come to know very well, Short, won their best and fairest last year, Prestia, Edwards and Rewalt. Uh, for the Blues, lion-hearted game from Sam Walsh. Patrick Cripps, as good as he usually is. Adam Sard, I thought, made a pretty impressive debut for them. 
probably the difference between these two sides, execution. Also, amount of inside 50s. Richmond were able to rack up 75 of them. We're going to see a few more of those sorts of numbers this year. The, the likes of um, inside 50 entries we haven't seen before. Carlton defended them pretty well, given that volume. But I just think these are two sides separated by a bit of class and execution at the end. These are, these are two teams that uh, historically played play round one. We know that, but just at the other ends of the table. Carlton, though, look, Charlie Curnow is not in the team, but when he returns, we don't know. What we do know is that Zach Martin and Zach Williams, I think, are back next week, certainly Zach Williams, they're good in. Zach Williams is going to add to the power running that we saw Sam Walsh provide, that we saw Adam Saad provide. They're good pickups, Saad and Walsh, uh, Saad and um, Williams for Carlton. Jack Martin, he's dangerous up forward, played very well in the corresponding game last year. And Carlton, I think, I've, I've been very, very, cool, very careful not to make this call early because I think a lot of people have. Carlton are a better team again than last year and a good enough team to, and I, I, this is the first time I've said it, in a decade or so, they're good enough to make the eight. Not not obviously in the upper climbs, but I think there'll be a spot always available around seven or eight. And I think Carlton has claims to it. And I guess the other thing out of this game, Rowan, is that both teams used the injury sub and certainly to great effect, Oscar McDonald came on on a night when endurance was required, fresh Oscar McDonald looked like a champion forward. And then Richmond inserted Jack Ross with great effect. So I think uh, we looked to that game to see exactly the benefit, that, that there are benefits in having a fresh player on the ground. So interesting. Yeah, good signs for both teams and uh, interesting uh, challenges for both next week. The Blues, of course, up against those old rivals, the Magpies. That is the Thursday evening game uh, next Thursday at the MCG, 7.20pm. And the Tigers, well, their game uh, is one which probably takes on a more interesting complexion as well. They're up against the Hawks at the MCG Sunday afternoon, one ten. Uh, maybe that's not going to be the pushover it was after Hawthorne's uh, brilliant effort on Saturday night, which we will talk about shortly. But that is the equation for both those teams next week. That was Thursday evening. Time to talk about Friday evening. Friday night at the MCG saw Collingwood up against the Western Bulldogs. And uh, in a, an affair which, uh, look, it was reasonably attractive footy, skill execution wasn't of the highest quality, it must be said. In the end, a 16-point win to the Western Bulldogs. 10 goals, 9, 69, defeating Collingwood, 7-11-53. The goal kickers uh, for the Bulldogs, Vandermeer, Norton and Smith, two each, singles the rest. And for the Pies, only four goal kickers for them, three of whom each kicked two. They were Majacek, Elliott and Cox, of course. Uh, grudge match, I don't know. I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit uh, cynical about those sort of titles. But, of course, Adam Trelaw turning out for the Bulldogs against his old side and had a, a pretty reasonable debut for them as well, I thought. But uh, the Bulldogs midfield, we've lauded it suitably over the pre-season and they reign supreme once again. Bailey Smith, of course, East Melbourne's finest mullet, 
he was on song, I think, best on ground, according to you, Fine, and according to just about everyone. Marcus Bontempelli, the captain, his usual seamless self. Jack McRae using, uh, picking up his usual uh, welter of touches. Caleb Daniel, impressive off halfback. Lockie Hunter, impressive midfield. And Stephen Martin uh, bobbing up with a really good supporting ruck roll to Tim English, allowing English to creep forward and uh, hit the scoreboard himself and create a bit of havoc up forward. Uh, I thought the Bulldogs can play a fair bit better than that, Finey, but even so, they won with a bit to spare. Collingwood, that forward setup, it has been a bit of an issue in recent years. I'm not sure it's going to be any less of an issue this season, particularly with Jaden Stevenson no longer part of the equation. How do you see this going? Well, first of all, we spoke about Richmond Carlton, the blueprint for many previous seasons' first-round encounters. Well, this, of course, was a replay of, or a replay, another version, or a year after Collingwood and the Doggies met in round one of 2020. Couldn't have been a more different game last year. Collingwood really tore the Bulldogs apart and set them on their heels and maybe even set them far back enough on their heels to impact on their whole season. And that was led by Brodie Grundy, who really showed Tim English out to be a bit of a man on a, a, a boy on a man's errand last year. How, how, how about the 12 months difference? Brodie Grundy, well and truly taken care of by English and Martin in combination. English excellent when going forward. So that problem not only was countered, it was sort of um, reversed to the point of advantage for the Bulldogs. And of course, the result was, as you say, never in doubt. They have got this power-packed midfield punch. And Collingwood, over the recent recent past, got to a grand final and has been a finals competitor on midfield strength. That midfield strength has been watered down. Directly benefiting from that, of course, have been the Bulldogs picking up Trelaw. But with Phillips gone and just a bit of age starting there to creep into the likes of a Pendlebury, it's not as deep as it was, and you are spot on. If Collingwood's not winning in the midfield, where are they winning, Rowan? Because they're not winning up forward. That forward line is as spectacularly inadequate as it was last year. I'll tell you, one area I think they did win, and it prevented this game from being an absolute blowout. That was in defence, where Darcy Moore was outstanding. Uh, I, I'd, I'd say, in fact, after Scott Pendlebury, probably their best player now. He saved them another four or five goals. I think he's got great judgment, uh, great strength aerially and pretty agile when the ball hits the ground. He was terrific for them. Uh, Jack Crisp, pretty handy, and Braden Maynard back there as well. And the defence really kept them in the game um, for that period of time they were actually in the game, which superficially, at least on the scoreboard, they were for quite a bit of the evening. But yeah, you're right. The midfield has been watered down. Obviously, steel side bottom makes a huge difference when he returns. But it's just that, yeah, I mean, look, as good as Pendles was, I'd take Pendles of three or four years ago over the Pendles of 2021. Uh, side bottom, you know, we're seeing his performance not at the levels of consistency it was. Uh, you know, sure, there's new players coming into that midfield mix, um, the likes of Dacos, uh, the Browns, but uh, are they ready to contribute on a consistent basis yet? I think Phillips might be a bigger loss to that group than people give credit for. Degoe, 
Now, it's, it's a, a good question because I'm not convinced that he is the midfield weapon that some people think he can be. Um, so there's a few ifs about them. Uh, I think plenty of people on that basis tipped them perhaps to slide out of the eight, remembering that they only just snuck into the eight last year, of course. Of course, survived to week two of the finals after winning an incredible um, upset victory over West Coast in Perth. But, uh, yeah, I wonder if those who still give the Magpies a, a, a bit of faith in their pre-season tipping uh, were perhaps swayed a little too much by that result because I wouldn't say they're in trouble, but I'm seeing them now as a you know middle-of-the-road-ish type side and um, unless something dramatic happens with that forward setup, I don't see how they're going to change it. I think they're in trouble. I don't think... I think Cox played quite well. Uh, they'll have worse games out of Cox... They can certainly get better form out of Dacos. And they had youngsters, Henry and Ruska, really frozen out, not participating. They're only kids. The reality is that it was a pretty messy post-season for Collingwood, wasn't it? And no indication. I know it's only one game, but no indication that they're not going to pay a penalty for that on the field in 2021. Yes, well, time will tell. And as we mentioned before, they have got the Blues next Thursday evening in that clash of traditional rivals. And the Bulldogs, they have got a massive game too on Sunday afternoon, 3.20 at Marvel Stadium, up against West Coast. I guess you could almost call them traditional rivals. They've had some absolute belters of games over the years and uh, plenty of finals between those two teams as well. And given the relative strength of both sides, that will be an eagerly anticipated contest as well. Yeah, right, Rowan, that's really interesting. Something uh, Footyology might be able to take up you via Twitter or Footyology, the website. You know, it is so easy. When we talk about rivalry in football, interstate teams, we just match them up. Frio, West Coast, Adelaide, Port Adelaide, et cetera, et cetera. Be very interesting to get people's opinions on who are traditional rivals of interstate teams out of their own state. I think that's a really good point, that the Doggies and West Coast have got a long, sometimes bitter history. We remember Danny Southern and uh, shenanigans over in WA and the played finals. It's it's an interesting question, isn't it? It is, and uh, West Coast have got a few in that boat. Geelong, obviously, a couple of grand finals against the Cats, Hawthorne. Uh, a couple of grand finals against the Hawks. So, uh, yep, well, feel free to correspond with footyology.com.au after you become a Patreon subscriber, of course. Uh, All right, that is Thursday and Friday night. Four games on Saturday. Let's run through those. The first of the quadrilla of games on Saturday was between Melbourne and Fremantle at the MCG. And it produced a 22-point win to the Demons, 11-14-80, defeating the Dockers, 8-10-58. Multiple goal kickers for the Demons, two to Fritch, two to Petrarca, two to Tom McDonald, uh, like his brother, bobbed up with a brace of goals for the Dockers, three to Matt Taberner, singles the rest for them. Uh, Good performance by the Demons, relatively speaking, do have to qualify that, though, Finey, because, uh, boy, this was a, a frustrating game to watch, uh, more so for the Dockers, obviously. But skills were very much wanting on the part of either side, I thought. In fact, there was a period of time in this game where 
you could back it in. Neither of these teams were capable of hitting the side of a very large barn. So many easy targets were being missed. It made for tough viewing, but the Demons were able to grind out a pretty good win in the end by 22 points, getting their season off to a good start. And uh, the Dockers, of course, had a long casualty list leading into this game, which didn't help, but it might look even worse. Uh, terrible start for them, really, when you think about Alex Pierce and Joel Hamley, both of whom missed the entirety of last year. Both look like they might have been seriously injured in their return games. Pierce with a knee, Hamling with an ankle. Uh, the Dockers will be waiting anxiously on reports of them. Uh, but all smiles for the Demons, finally. Uh, they're hopeful of resurrecting themselves to a level somewhere closer to that preliminary final form they showed back in 2018. Uh, how good did you think they were? Well, there are limitations because of, as you said, some sort of ball slaughtering that went on throughout the afternoon. But what works very well for them is what I think is starting to become the the envy of the 17 clubs in terms of a great defensive pairing in Weaver and May. Those two big men just don't stop their opponents. They work it so that they become attacking options, normally May as well. And, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. You've got to be really careful when you're using the ball into the Melbourne forward line because one bad kick and you can find yourself on the receiving end of a Melbourne score. That's a great way to play football, springboarding with those two very good players. Clayton Hunt's gone back there. Harms is a good player. They get good run out of the back line. It's nicely set up, even Neville Jetta returning to senior football after a very sketchy 2020 looked pretty decent when he had ball in hand. Uh, we saw something that even though you don't like seeing, if you missed it, I bet you a lot of people went to have a look at it. The train wreck that is somebody who has actually during the game developed yips in front of the goal to the point where he is barely able to kick the thing. And Luke Jackson, by the end of the game, had developed a car crash, sort of attracting, rubbernecking, gawking fan I became. But it was horrific. He's gone kicking towards the end and we'll see if he can sort something out during the week because his marking was bloody good at the end of the game, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I'd be terribly disappointed with this performance if I was a Dockers fan, injuries notwithstanding. It just it smacked of the old Fremantle to me in that, uh, you know, you used to be able to see, particularly in their road trips, you'd watch the first five, ten minutes, and if things didn't go their way, if, you know, a couple of easy shots missed or a few fumbles here and there, you could just about ride them off for the day. And um, that's pretty much how it began. Melbourne got the jump on them. And they never look likely to turn it around and come good and, and uh, turn around a losing score in order to win the game. Um, they've got to be better than that. Um, you know, Nat Fife, uh, you know, steady without anything, being anything spectacular. Uh, the Fremantle Brayshaw uh, probably edged in his battle too. Clayton Oliver particularly good for the Demons and Petrarca on top. Uh, of his men as well. Uh, Langdon, of course, former docker himself, he gave Melbourne pretty good value as well. And it wasn't as, uh, as though the Fremantle runners didn't contribute. You know, Chera was okay. Caleb Sarong was okay. Uh, H had his moments. But um, scoring's been an issue for the Dockers, and I didn't see anything 
uh, on Saturday to make me think it's going to be any less of an issue. Uh, look, Tabin has chipped in with three goals, but it, it can't be left to him if they're to have any sort of hope of kicking winning scores. Michael Walters makes a difference. But, um, yeah, I mean, if this is a side that is going to be pressing for the eight and they do seem to have a bit of support on that front, they have got to be so much better than they were against the Demons. Both teams need to be better, Rowan, but Melbourne got the four points, so they leave with, with the smiles. Yeah, well, good start to the year for them. Let's have a look at who either team has next week. Big test for the Demons up against your Saints, Finey, at Marvel Stadium on the Saturday evening. That'll be a good test of their capabilities. And Fremantle um, play the last game in round two at uh, 6.10 or uh, 3.10 p.m. local time against the Giants. And that is certainly one they will want to bank if they have finals aspirations. So that was the first game on the Saturday agenda. The second one, not only a major upset, I would say one of the biggest upsets in recent football history. Let's talk about that. Well, 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 what a scoreline this was. Was there a tipster in the entire country uh, qualifier who knew anything about football who tipped this result? An eight-point victory to Adelaide over Geelong. That's right. Last year's Wooden Spooner beating last year's runner-up first up into the new season. Adelaide, 15-13, 103, defeating the Cats, 13-13-91. Tex Walker, supreme performance from the former skipper. Five goals to him, two each to a debutante in row. What a little bundle of energy he is. Two goals to Frampton, who very much came alive, and two goals to McHenry, singles the rest for the Crows. And for the Cats, evenly spread 10 individual goal kickers, but no one with any more than two. Uh, Two to Parfit, two to Hawkins, and two to Isaac Smith in his first game in the blue and white hoops. And finally, amazing performance by the Crows, but... You've got to say, it was on the cards from pretty early. It was like when they turned their form around last year. You know, the very first win that they got last year over Hawthorne, they started well. The energy levels rose, the emotion rose, and the confidence rose accordingly. And this is how they began this game. And you could just see these guys visibly grow and think, we've got these guys on the run. Why can't we beat them? And they led start to finish. It wasn't like Geelong didn't threaten at various times either. They threatened during the third quarter briefly. They threatened again late in the piece when Isaac Smith bobbed up with the couple. But Adelaide just held firm. Fantastic win for them. Uh, and Tex Walker, uh, a, a terrific game from him. I know you'd like to talk about that. You've been a harsh critic. You're not on your own there, but he was fantastic for the Crows, Finey. Great. And fitting that I think he had the ball in hand when the final siren went, or near enough to. Worked hard leading up the ground. Great contest. Kicked goals as well. Yes, I've been a harsh critic of Taylor Walker in the latter stage of his stages of his career, but he deserves all of the bouquets that he gets after this game. Well, there it was. It was like a um, greyhound trying to catch the lure, wasn't it? Under 
their nose for most of the game because Adelaide weren't quite able to split it open and get that six, five or six goals in front to really put pen to paper and sign off on a great win. It had to go down to the wire, but as long we're coming at the end of the game, their medical sub gave them a real kick along when Charlie Constable took the field. They seemed to have all the momentum. Adelaide, being a younger team, became fragmented down back, but they had responses. And amazingly, Billy Frampton, an unlikely type, it was able to seal the deal for them. I mean, the first of his two goals was catastrophic. I think he played on from a free kick that would have been taken 15 in front of goals and he was being chastised by the commentators as it went through. But when I say catastrophic, it could have been. What does it mean for Geelong? I think there's going to be a lot written. There always is after round one. Conclusions are drawn on a very small sample, one game. But Tom Hawkins was virtually, you know, he's never played with Cameron. And I saw a good tweet on one of our one of our um, regular tweet. I think it might have been Greg Baum actually said he's always said it. No Cameron, no Geelong. Anyhow, um, Hawkins was himself disappointing. Missed the snap late in the game. We know he can lift. The the thing that Geelong has firmly in their corner is GMHBA. They'll be able to return there, train do the analysis and relaunch, you know, and hopefully for the, from their perspective, relaunch the season. It's the What this game means will be told in the next couple of weeks. As a one-off, sure, you can have a terrible game. That's not the problem. It's how they respond. Because they did look sluggish. They did not look like the Geelong of last season. Cameron Guthrie, so brilliant in 2020, had virtually no effect on the game. Uh, Dangerfield tried to lift them, and he almost did. He has, a, you know, an obvious issue, and uh, that head contact will result in a suspension. As we go to air, as we go to air, we don't have the numbers. We might have it to you by the end of the show, one or two weeks, but surely he's out for one or two, Rowan. Well, it's been referred directly to the tribunal, so we've got to wait on that one. But yeah. Uh, yep. I, I can't remember many that okay. are referred to the tribunal that don't end up with at least a couple of games out. And I think the interpretation of that, um, the responsibility of the bumper uh, and inflicting injury on the bumpee, they've, they've changed that a couple of times. But uh, the last or most recent interpretation means that the um, person who elects to bump does have to take responsibility for damage called, caused. And that was considerable in this case because Jay Kelly was concussed and ruled out for the rest of the game. Incidentally, uh, further underscoring the quality of the Adelaide win, they lost Jay Kelly. They lost Luke Brown with an Achilles injury and they lost Mitch Hinge with a uh, shoulder injury as well. So they were certainly down a few potential rotations at the end, which made uh, their... Um, capacity to hang on in that finish with Geelong coming home. Uh, a pretty fair effort indeed. As for the Cats, Viney, well, you can't always judge them early on. Don't forget last year, of course, they did lose at home at GMHBA Stadium to Carlton. And uh, by the end of a season, that looked like an anomaly, obviously, rather than um, being par for the course. So I wouldn't be panicking yet about the Cats. A couple more 
of that ilk and maybe there might be some questions asked, but way too early to jump to conclusions in round one. Rowan, just as a South Park fan, when you hear the name Mitch Hinge, do you remember, the, does that remind you of the Mingy episode? Uh, yes, vaguely, uh, about Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, but um, yep. probably one of those uh, South Park episodes we best not discuss on a family podcast, which is probably most of them, if we're being totally frank. <laughs> uh, let's have a look who either of these sides are playing next week. And the Cats, uh, big game this one. It's a replay of last year's preliminary final. It is, of course, unlike that game at GMHBA Stadium. Geelong up against Brisbane, who will be stung after their loss as well, which we're about to talk about. That is at 7.50pm next Friday evening. And the Crows, uh, they've got a tough ask because they are up against Brisbane's conquerors of round one. That is Sydney. And that game is the first on the Saturday menu, 1.45pm next Saturday, March 27th at the SCG. All right, there's two games from Saturday done and dusted. Two games played on Saturday evening. One was another shock and one was an absolute thriller. Let's talk about the latter. Well, those massive rivals of the 1980s, uh, still plenty of enmity between these two sides. But it was the Brown and Gold who emerged triumphant with a fantastic comeback win for them defeating Essendon by a point at Marvel Stadium. 14-8, that accuracy certainly helping the Hawks. 14-8-92, defeating the Bombers 13-13-91. For the Hawks, Dylan Moore bobbing up with three goals. I think all of them kicked in the third quarter. Two each to Brockman, Morrison and O'Brien. For the Bombers, only three multiple goal kickers. They were McDonald, Tippenwooty, Shield. And Smith, an amazing swings and roundabouts game. This one, finally, Essendon breaking clear to a 40-point lead in the second quarter after booting eight goals to just one in the second term. And lo and behold, those roles were completely reversed in the third quarter when it was Hawthorne who banged on eight goals straight to Essendon's 1-4 Two goals each in the final term. Ben McAvoy put the Hawks up for the first time in a long time. Uh, Big Sam Draper levelled the scores for the Dons. Essendon then hit the front after a free kick to Devin Smith. Five points up. The ball goes straight back to the centre with uh, about two minutes left on the clock. And the Hawks promptly waltzed the ball out of the middle. Tim O'Brien took a good mark and snapped truly after playing on. And the Hawks were able to hang on the ball on the wing when the final siren went. Uh, Absolute joy for their, uh, I've got to say, pretty small band of supporters at Marvel Stadium. And uh, some Bomber fans in the crowd did conduct themselves uh, fairly indiscreetly when the siren went. And yes, I was one of them if you were sitting in the proximity to me. Um, not proud of my efforts to be <laughs> to be totally frank. The expletives were flying. Great effort by the Hawks. Uh, well, I guess both sides will take plenty out of it. The Bombers will be pretty heartened by that second quarter effort, but that will be balanced uh, definitely by that disappearing act in the third quarter. Hawthorne, well, they've got to arrest uh, ra- um, runs of goals like that uh, from opposition sides, but 
Uh, terrific comeback by them. Alistair Clarkson pulling a few levers and sparking a few blokes into action who hadn't had much to do with proceedings in the first half. What'd you make of it? Well, I'm going to ask you what you made of it. Not as the very impartial and, you know, well, through your time at The Age and now through footyology and on TV, radio, you've always been able to park, well, pretty much park your emotions as an Essendon man. But I, I want you to take yourself back to the game as an Essendon supporter and tell me whether, obviously, the disappointment of losing by a point when you're up by 40 during the game is pretty devastating for round one. You want that win. But when the dust settled, how did you view that game? Because if I was an Essendon supporter, I would be absolutely cock a hoop today. I know it would require some sort of mental gymnastics. Harry Jones' first possession. Well, it didn't take me long to fall in love with Harry Jones as a footballer. The future there is as bright as, you know, uh, as bright as a comet, but it's not gonna, you're not going to have to wait that long to see it again. Uh, you've got Nick Cox. The move, you're right, of Laverde to the back line takes a pop-gun sort of footballer for mine as a forward, very unreliable, I found him as a forward, into a much sturdier man. Nick Hind was the right pickup for Essendon. He played a good game. Heppel off the half-back line worked well. McGrath's maturing into one of the best midfielders in the comp. Draper, he went hammer and tong with one of the, you know, a true warrior and almost with that last goal, I mean, back of all, he got a great goal in the last quarter. Almost was part of a famous win. I love Draper. I think let that park that disappointment, Rowan. That was a real step forward. Rutten has them playing well. There's no question that they've got a good coach in terms of boys that want to play for him. I'd be wrapped if I was a Don's man after last year's disappointments. Uh, well, I'm not. And I suspect I'm in the majority. Uh, look, everything you say there is I agree with. I think um, there are plenty of pluses in those young guys you mentioned. I know Josh Fraser uh, tweeted me at one stage last night about Nick Cox. He loved his game. Um, I thought Nick Hine offered plenty of run. And, yeah, Jones, he just needs the kicking boots on. So no doubt there were pluses. What worries me, though, and it's a problem that has been there for a while, is not just the disappearing act, but it was who did the disappearing act when the heat was really on. And Dylan Shield, I'll be interested to see how his game's assessed uh, by the coach and the um, other assistant coaches, because I think there's a, a dangerous sort of theme recurring about him and that he, he's, uh, he's pretty good when Essendon is in the ascendancy. And then when it's not, I think he really struggles. Uh, I thought Dyson Heppel was terrific early, but again, faded from view a bit. I thought Andy McGrath, probably Essendon's best player. So no knock on him, but he wasn't the force in the second half that he was. And look, when a side gets a run on to that extent, and they did kick five in about 10 minutes, I reckon, one of those senior faces has to jump up and steady the ship, whether it's slowing the play down, whether it's perhaps uh, causing a bit of a fracas just to you know, sort of change the emotion levels and throw a spanner in the works, just stop that momentum. I didn't think there was nearly enough done on that score. Um, In terms of the coach's box, I was a bit critical of them not moving Hooker back when he'd been struggling up forward and could have done something to combat that height down there. I thought Aaron Francis had a shocker and I thought uh, Laverde promising, but I think Essendon is going to have some major issues with the lack of 
height and strength in that back line unless Hooker comes back and uh, Michael Hurley comes back and that might be some time off for the latter. So I, I look at some promise, but I think the most worrying issues haven't necessarily been addressed. We should mention Jai Caldwell, by the way, because... Oh, yes, yes, very good. Uh, not by the well, by the way, because uh, he was very good early. So, look, that's how I see it. I may be critical. Let's not make it all about the Bombers, though. Uh, I'll tell you, one guy that really impressed me for the Hawks, Swanee, and I'm going to squib it by calling him CJ. Boy, that man has some toe. And he looks a far more confident player than he did last season. Yeah, yeah they sort of uh, told us over the summer that he had taken that step confidence, maturity, body-wise, and they were investing run and a lot of the backline transition into his young hands. Very impressive. Played well. And you've got to hand it to Tom Mitchell. No preseason virtually. A tough year last year. No year the year before. Some question marks on that man. And as you pointed out, if Essendon faded, well, if anybody had the right to fade with his interrupted preseason, it was Mitchell, but he, you know, he's he's beaten pulse in the game just rose as the most important period of the game approached, and that was that sort of nail-biting last 10 minutes, and uh, you've got to hand it to the leading possession winner on the ground. He might have launched himself into another uh, sort of Brownlow winning or Brownlow attention-getting season. I think three votes, T. Mitchell, for mine. All right, they'll really enjoy that one for a couple of days at least. The Hawks, both these sides have big challenges next week. Essendon's doesn't get a lot bigger than this. Port Adelaide in Adelaide. That one is at 4.35pm Eastern Standard Time next Saturday afternoon or twilight. And the Hawks, as we said earlier, up against the reigning premiers. uh, Richmond at the MCG, 1.10pm on Sunday. Well, there was another game on Saturday evening. And that produced another result not too many people were counting on. Well, talk about upsets. Uh, I'm pretty happy with this one, given my pre-season ladder prediction. And I had the victors in this game as a surprise finalist. Uh, There might be a few jumping on board if they continue to play like this. I'm talking about Sydney, of course. 20, in fact, 31-point victors. Over Brisbane, 19 goals, 11, 125 to the Lions, 14, 10, 94. That 19, 11, including a nine-goal second term when they just were absolutely on fire. 9-2 they kicked in that third quarter to Brisbane's two goals. The goal kickers for the victors, golden, three goals, a golden Debut by Goulden. He was terrific. Three to Heaney, three to Logan McDonald, another debutante, and two to Mills, Parker, Reed, and Wicks. For Brisbane, three goals to Zach Bailey, including the first two of the game. Two goals to Joe Danaher in his first game for the Lions. Also fined, courtesy of the match review officer. Two to Lincoln McCarthy. Singles, the rest. Well, Finey, we t- we've talked about the Swans kids. Some of them, I think, have definitely got under the radar. But a couple of debutants, throw them into the mix as well. You throw the uh, continued development of the likes of Robottom, McCartan into the mix. Pretty good game first up from their uh, recruit ruckman, Tom Hickey. 
now at his fourth AFL club. And all of a sudden, you've got a side that looks completely revitalised and very different in character to the ones we've become used to from the Swans. It's not all about grit and contested ball and hard work at the stoppages. This is a side that can run. They have some serious run among those younger leagues. And uh, they ran the pants off Brisbane. This was a fantastic win by them. In Brisbane, against a team many consider ready to take the ultimate step and play at least in a grand final, if not win it. I'm not in that corner, but nevertheless, highly regarded. Without their star act of years gone by, Franklin, and still relatively young. Rowan, you had them as your dark, not dark horse bolter, you had them as a genuine member of your top eight, and for good reason. Now, we cannot expect the likes of Errol Goulden and Logan McDonald to produce those or get those returns on a week-in, week-out basis. It just doesn't happen in the modern game to young goal-kicking footballers, forwards, etc. But they're bloody good. And in due course, there'll be regular contributors. Who knows? Maybe they can. McCartan's a great key backman. Remember, a guy that we love, McInerney, will be back in the team in a week or two. If Franklin does return to that side, and he will, imagine if he returned to that team already in the eight and scoring above 100 points on a weekly basis. Won't that be a powerhouse team in the competition and great to watch? I want to talk a little bit about Brisbane and where some concerns start to be had. And again, like Geelong, one game. Let's see what their response is. She's a marathon, not a 100-metre sprint. It's a long season. But given they were playing a young side, their lack of physical ability to impose themselves physically on the game when they were getting overrun in that second quarter is a worry. Uh, They've got a lot of players who are not physical footballers. McCluggage is beautiful, but he's not physical. Daniel Rich is chunky, but he's not physical, that's for sure. Um, Their midfield brigade, Mitch Robinson does a lot of the sort of heavy lifting and crashing into players, but he's getting on in years and it's sort of a bit of a one-act one act affair. Lockie Neal's a very tough footballer, don't get me wrong. He's there right in the clinches. But in terms of bowling a few over legally and saying, hang on, we're the big dogs in this game, we're the senior team, kids, you're going to have to pay a price for your brashness. There was nobody in their team to do that. They don't have that response. They don't have that facility in their side. And I think good teams need to do do that and are capable of doing that. And I don't think they're capable of doing it, Rowan. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And uh, you could say that across the board, really. It's not just in midfield. I mean, look, down defence, Harris Andrews is a a very strong-bodied defender, but are his fellow defenders of the same milk? Probably not. You look at the other end of the ground, you've got uh, Eric Hipwood, Joe Danaher. I mean, they're not, uh, you know, they don't have that sort of physical presence of, say, a a Lynch and a Rewalt, do they? So, um, yeah, they're, they're not a side opponents look at and fear in a physical sense. I guess the other if uh, about them is, you know, still a predominantly young list and best 22. You know, does it, 
is it easier for those sorts of sides with that sort of age profile after a couple of good years to start to think it's all just going to sort of happen? And, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, I know, but it's remarkable how often you do see that happen. And we've seen sides like, uh, don't forget, Richmond have done this as well. Richmond, of course, appeared in three straight elimination finals and then had that absolute nightmare of a season in 2016. Uh, We saw Geelong do the same thing back in the early 2000s. So I'm not saying Brisbane's necessarily going to have that sort of year, but I think it uh, does become harder mentally to sustain the level of effort that has gone into the past two years when you still have as many relatively inexperienced and inexperienced in September um, faces as do the Lions. So it's certainly uh, thrown down the gauntlet to Chris Fagan in a motivational sense for next week. It's going to be very, very interesting indeed to see how they respond. Speaking of which, uh, well, we mentioned this game before. Um, it's going to be bloody tough for them to respond because they have got arguably the toughest road trip in football down to the Kattering to play Geelong at GMHBA Stadium next Friday night at 7.50pm. Really, really tough ask for them. Sydney get to play at home, uh, although their fixture isn't the cakewalk many would have anticipated before this weekend. They are up against Adelaide, of course, fresh off that great win over the Cats. That is 1.45pm on Saturday afternoon. They are our four Saturday games discussed. Uh, Let's talk about the three on Sunday. First game of a triple header on Sunday to complete round one. Uh, We did speculate that this one could get ugly. Did finish ugly-ish. Didn't start that way, though, because North Melbourne took it right up to Port Adelaide early. Didn't take the power too long to assert their authority on this game, though, and they did that with a stunning eight-goal second quarter to give them a commanding halftime lead. And then it was pretty much steady as she goes. Six goals in the second half to the Roos, seven to Port. The final scores, Port Adelaide 17-15, 117, defeating North Melbourne, 9-11-65. A 52-point win to the power. Some significant individual efforts by them. Nonetheless, their leading goal kicker on the day, playing his first game for his new club. Pains me to say it. Orazio Fantasia, four goals and a pretty dynamic performance from him. In fact, I think he kicked 4-4, so he could have had a few more. Two goals to Travis Boak. Finally, we did talk during the week about could he sustain his levels of performance? Well, you'd hope that that first game as a guide and the answer will be very much in the affirmative. He was outstanding. Two to Charlie Dixon, two to Zach, everyone knows it's Butters, and two to Todd Marshall uh, for the Roos, two to Scott, two to Thomas, singles the rest. Uh, it's pretty much over as a contest at halftime, Finey. I'm going to throw this one to you, though. Is it all doom and gloom for the Roos, or do you think they would have got something positive out of the afternoon? Well, they certainly would have got, at quarter time, the template for being competitive because they had the best of the first quarter. Had they kicked straighter, they probably deserved to be two or three goals in front. Their their full-court press on every single player 
defensively. Their forwards were doing hard work at the drop of the ball. Their defensive work right around the ground was commendable. And given that we'd seen Adelaide upset Geelong, I guess in the back of our minds was, well, hang on, is a team that's, you know, invested in the game as North is, they could pull off an upset here. Because we also saw with the Brisbane loss that top teams only need to be off that 1% or 2%, whatever the percentage is. If their head's not in the game, you can be second to the contest and you won't win. They're playing a very good side, though. And interestingly, the second quarter, the first two or three minutes, it was more of the same. North really putting a lot of pressure on their opponents, but not capitalising on the scoreboard. Eventually, Port Adelaide started getting some possession through turnover. And that's the best sort of possession you can get in football because it allows your forwards one-on-one opportunities. And how good is that forward line when given those opportunities? Butters, Fantasia, didn't he look like the right player to go to the club? We weren't sure whether they necessarily needed him. Connor Rosie didn't play, so there was a spot for another small to mid-sized forward. But his speed up and down the ground provides the point of difference. Uh, you've got Robbie Gray there, the ultimate danger at the drop of the ball one-on-one, even in the air. And it quickly became clear why Port Adelaide, for some, are the team, the next team to win a flag this year, next year. You know, if once Richmond's reigns over, a lot of people's successor is Port Adelaide. I think we saw why. Because of that forward line, because that very, very solid back line, and because of a midfield that ain't getting any older. <laughs> we asked the question. We got an answer. Don't look any older to me. You only look better. Yeah, well, I reckon there's an argument Port could have the most significant recruiter this season, and his name is Alia Alia. Uh, you know, if there was one area that probably cost them at least a grand final appearance, it was their defence. That's not even a slight on their defence. I just think in the end, they weren't probably quite physically equipped enough to deal with a couple of brutish key forwards in uh, Tom Lynch and Jack Rewalt. Well, Aaliyah Aaliyah changes that dynamic completely, not just because of his strength and height, but his tremendous judgment, which was right on in evidence today, I thought. He was outstanding for them. But just as importantly, he allows the likes of Cleary and Jonas to zone off a bit more and turn that defence into a, a more potent weapon than it had been already. They were missing a few decent players today too, the power. Don't forget, uh, Pal Pepper not there. Hartlett not there. Rosie not there. Um, they have some serious depth. The, 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 the yawning gap between these two sides for me have a look at a lot of the stats. You know, it wasn't like North couldn't get their hands on the footy. They were okay for contested ball. Most of the key stats they uh, sort of racked up in in pretty much equal numbers. It's just that efficiency. And Port's delivery of the ball by foot was superb, particularly inside 50. That was the area in which North couldn't compete. And I'm just wondering if that's going to be the biggest difference between the best and less capable sides in 2021. It'll be efficiency of ball use. And there's absolutely no question about how efficient Port is with the ball. They are definitely a serious flag contender. Uh, as for challenges... Let's be fair. Let's be fair to North. For a team at the lower end of the ladder, no Cunnington, no Anderson, no Dumont in the middle, no Robbie Tarrant, that's a lot of um, top-end talent out of one of our bottom four 
teams that we expect. It is. Look, they uh, they are on a rebuilding mission. They'll have their moments in the sun this year. I don't think it was all gloom and doom for them. In terms of next week, the immediate challenges for both Port, as we said, have a game against Essendon at home. That is the Saturday twilight game. So uh, a really big challenge for the Bombers. You'd be expecting Port to win that one. And for North Melbourne, what have they got up next week? Well, for the Kangaroos, the equation is this. It is a visit to Metricon Stadium to play Gold Coast, a side that has given them their share of heartache in recent times. So they'll be desperate to jag a win in that game. Rowan, I I can hear the North Melbourne supporters screaming at the uh, podcast. Late withdrawal was their BNF winner last year as well, McDonald. Luke McDonald, yep. No, very good call. Apologies for having overlooked that. All right, that is the first of the Sunday games. Let's talk about number two. Well, another thriller on Sunday afternoon up in Sydney, played in very, very difficult conditions, been pouring up there over the last 48, 72 hours. Uh, But a gripping game nonetheless and a fantastic win in the finish for St Kilda by eight points over GWS. 13 goals, 8-86, defeating the Giants, 11-12-78. The goal kickers, Tim Membry, three for the victors. Two each to Jack Higgins in his debut in red, white and black. Two to Loney, two to Ross. For the Giants, three to Harry Himmelberg. Could have gone either way this game, uh, but the Saints kicked last. A little bit of controversy perhaps right at the end there. The clinching goal coming from Dan Butler after a free kick paid against GWS veteran Callan Ward who Butler uh, bumped, the ball spilled free, and uh, field umpire Eleni Gluftus paid, uh, still not sure whether she paid holding the ball, incorrect disposal, or what she paid, but uh, certainly the subject of some debate on social media immediately afterwards. Um, I'll get quickly your thoughts on that free kick, Fanny. Was it a free kick or not? Probably not. He he didn't go to bump. He went to tackle, but he couldn't stick the tackle. So it became a bump. And then the rule should be play on. Uh, if you have a look at it, though, the ball fell free to Higgins because GWS desperately needed to attack. St Kilda, I think, almost certainly get a goal out of that play, regardless of the free kick being given. And you don't get much sympathy from St Kilda supporters. I think that, you know, 15 or 16 free kicks differential and I know it's not about the number but boy they were getting they were getting a bit of a run there and uh, certainly the one against McKernan in the ruck contest out the front of goals at the start of that last quarter uh, added to the ire but this was a really good game my best on ground was an interesting one it was the ground how good could I know you know they were slippery given that uh, the Melbourne victory Sydney FC game was called off Golden Slipper race meeting was called off at Randwick. How good of condition was the ground in? We saw some great football that's sort of exemplified by that magnificent mark by Toby Green early in the game. Hard to do that in a swamp. And uh, that's a good place to play football. I thought it was a very high standard game given the extenuating circumstances. I was super impressed 
by a number of GWS players. Hopper, Taranto. The midfield remains strong for them, doesn't it? Flynn was great in his first game in the ruck. Uh, his opponents, Hunter and McKernan, were beaten, I believe, throughout the day. They competed but were beaten. In the end, though, Tim Membry, pretty good effort. How about that mark he took in the last quarter with the two-foot leap, two leap that just confused uh, his opposite number? And one's Taylor. Taylor, yeah. And I've got to say, uh, Membry really, after a, not a great season last year, I think played as well as I've seen him play in red, white and black and won the game for the Saints. Yeah, I think... Um... The great thing out of this for the Saints, I reckon, is just that resilience. Uh, I mean, that's probably, you know, as good a season as they had last year, that's probably the next step in the developmental ladder for them. I think that capacity to turn around adverse situations. Not that they didn't do that last year, but this was a game which once the Giants got on top, um, you know, a St Kilda of perhaps 12 months ago might have ended up on the wrong end. They were able to steal themselves, not just once, steal themselves, pardon the pun, um, a couple of times. So a really good effort on that score for them. Be interested to see how the Giants treat this game too because, uh, you know, as plucky as they were, I just think that if you look at the length of the absentee list for the Saints, uh, I, I think if they weren't going to beat St Kilda at home, uh, under those conditions, they'd struggle to beat them any time. So I think this is a game... They probably should have won. Having said that, I tipped St Kilda. I sort of counted on that St Kilda resilience. So I think it's a really good win for them. And I must admit, yeah, look, the Giants were okay, but I haven't seen anything in this result which makes me feel even slightly nervous about tipping them to finish 11th or 12th on the ladder. I think there's a definite changing of the guard going on there. I don't think they're the star-studded lineup they used to be. Um, and I think they've got a bit of work to do to remain competitive. Toby Green and, uh, you know, the likes of Josh Kelly aside. So uh, good signs here for the Saints, um, I believe. And finally, you'd have to be pretty chuffed with a win like that, I reckon. Uh, well, we've both tipped them. You've tipped them for the, the top four. I've certainly tipped them in the upper echelons of the eight. Uh, I think we can both feel reasonably confident uh, there's a fair chance that might happen, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there the ins make it um, easy for St Kilda supporters to get ahead of themselves. But on what we saw today, the club's not getting ahead of themselves. It was a good, hard-working win in difficult conditions. Given that St Kilda's strength, greatest strength is their speed and we expect them to be good under the roof, that was a pretty good effort when a roof was desperately required. All right, uh, next week, uh, the Saints take on the Demons, 7.25pm on Saturday evening at Marvel Stadium. And the Giants, uh, they've got a tough road trip to Perth, Optus Stadium, to take on Fremantle. Uh, uh, Fremantle stung by a pretty ordinary performance in their first up hit out. That game is at 6.10pm Eastern Standard Time the final game of round two. The final game of round one was played at 6.10pm Eastern Standard Time between the coasts, West Coast and Gold Coast. Let's have a chat about what happened. (laughs) Round one finished off in Perth Sunday evening with a battle of the coasters, the West Coasters and the Gold Coasters. 
And it was the home team which prevailed, but not after one hell of a struggle. West Coast, in the end, victors by 25 points, 12-11-83, defeating Gold Coast, 8-10-58. I've got to say, though, that is a margin that dares to deceive because this was a game very much in the balance with only a handful of minutes remaining. West Coast getting, uh, I think, the last four goals of the game to end up with superficially comfortable win. It was anything but... And even more notably, after getting off to a flyer of a start, the Eagles kicking the first three goals of the game, not for the first time in a game over there. That made you think, well, how far this is going to be a tedious one-sided affair. Well, full points to the Suns. They really fought their way back into this game. And they did it after losing their biggest and brightest star draftee, Matt Rowell, playing his first game since round five last season. And, uh, well, fingers crossed on this one. It appeared to be a shocker initially. He went off with a very, what looked to be a very serious knee injury. As we record this, uh, the latest updates uh, say that it could be a posterior cruciate ligament injury. Uh, He's going to, whatever it is, he's going to miss a few weeks at least. But uh, certainly Gold Coast coach Stuart Dew, hopeful, that it may only be a few weeks and not a uh, full catastrophe and rule him him out for the season for the second year in a row. West Coast prevailing in the end, the goal kickers, Oscar Allen kick four, real target for them up forward. And the twin towers, Jack Darling and Josh Kennedy, each kick two for Gold Coast. Uh, Big Benny King kicked three goals and singles the rest. But uh, a really game effort. Look, I think finally the Suns will be sick of that phrase, uh, gallant in defeat. But this really was one of those cases. Given the venue, given the opponent, given the loss of their key player, um, they really showed some welcome resilience and uh, certainly can take a lot positive out of that game, even in defeat, don't you think? They certainly can. They led at three-quarter time and started the last quarter with an attention-grabbing home crowd silencing goal. So they were on the way to a famous victory. Stand up Oscar Allen at the first measure. He's uh, been touted for great things for good reason. At the moment, he's been used as a tall forward. Nick Nett knew he had Nathan Vardy for backup, but he can ruck as well. And he is the most valuable of commodities in the modern game, isn't he? A big man that can ruck and then go forward and be a genuine key forward target. Liam Ryan iced the game in typical Liam Ryan fashion with a, 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 a sort of angle goal on the run that for any other player, I guess, Gold Coast fans would have been hoping that this difficult shot would have been a miss. But for Liam Ryan, I guess Gold Coast fans would have, uh, as soon as he got the ball, sort of thought, well, game over, and they were spot on. Your quick man, Patrick Shelley. Uh, Had a a final say and the crowd loved that. It was a very good win by West Coast because they came up against a team that is going to take some beating this year. They've got good key defenders. Everybody loves the Sam Collins story. The midfield, especially with Matt Rowell in it, now is, um, I would say, sort of a midway midfield in the competition, and that's coming from a long way back. In other words, a sort of eighth or ninth best midfield. That's pretty good. With Raoul in it, I do stress. 
And the forward line structures up really well. Rankin was uh, electric early and he's a dangerous footballer. And he seemed to add a more conscientious, defensive, hard-working edge to his game this afternoon. And if you can do that in 37-degree heat, we've got to mention the heat, Rowan. Mm. Not many football games have... Not in the history of our game, not many have been played in temperatures hotter than those boys had to put up with today. So uh, the fact that this game can be played in torrential rain, wind, and they can also be played at a very similar standard in ferocious, blistering heat is credit to the fitness and athleticism of the modern footballer, is it not? Oh, it certainly is. Look, I, I, I guess from a big picture point of view, it, it leaves me sort of wondering about the West Coast midfield, um, particularly up against the Gold Coast midfield that was without uh, in Matt Rowland's biggest star for the, uh, the vast bulk of proceedings. Of course, the Eagles currently without Luke Shuey and Elliot Yo. Now, they are two pretty significant inclusions and you would expect them to bolster their midfield firepower significantly. But is it still one or two perhaps short of the absolute best teams in the competition? You know, is it just a few rotations short of where you need to be against say, the Port Adelaide's and the Richmond's and certainly the Western Bulldogs. You have a look at the numbers of guys they've got going through their midfield. Does it become too reliant for the Eagles on too few, as good as those players are? What do you think? I believe you're correct. I've always felt it was a little bit thin, and that's exacerbated now by any injury to a starting midfielder. Take Shuey and Dio out, and it becomes problematic. You know who it, you know what it's missing? What's that? The, the Tim Kelly we thought they were getting from Geelong. Now, that's not to say he didn't have an important um, say in this game. But he's not the absolute... Well, he had joined, really, the Bontempelli, uh, Martin, sort of Cripps, master, you know, match-winning type midfielders, hadn't he, at his time at Geelong? And the thought was, back home, happy and playing with the brilliant West Coast Eagles, he could really even elevate that to be, you know, a superstar of this game. But he's not yet, is he? No, he's not. But I think he's I think he's creeping closer. I think he finished last year in a lot better shape than he started it. And I thought he was pretty decent today. I, I certainly would have had him in their best handful of players. 28, yeah. 28 disposals he's finished with. You know, the other guy um, who I think it's one of those classic ones where um, perhaps people on the east coast of the country have been a bit slower to embrace his uh, his capabilities. But uh, Tom Barras, he's a terrific player for West Coast. He's a really, really important part of that defence and has been a very good player for a long while now. And I think those are the sorts of players who might uh, just push West Coast from you know, that bottom half of the eight first side out in the last couple of years to getting back to that sort of 2018 level where they're very much one of the key players. Uh, likewise, I think a guy like Liam Duggan, who was terrific for them last year, and he definitely has arrived on the stage of, as one of their most important players. Dom Sheed, very good today too. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Allen has taken the lead role today on the goal-kicking front. Barras, probably the best of the defenders. Uh, Sheed, the best of the on-ballers. So it's not a changing of the guard. I mean, uh, two of those three have been around for a fair while. And even Alan's been there, I think, what, four seasons now. This is his fourth season. 
but it just adds to the armory, doesn't it? Mid- having said that... Yeah, but Rowan, yeah. it took them three and a half quarters to shake off the Gold Coast who'd lost Matt Rowell in the first half of the game. That, you know, that if, if you take a, um, a, a critical look at how they played today, especially given that Allen was great, Barass, everything you said is correct. They shouldn't they be handling that sort of opposition with greater aplomb? Well, uh, that yes, based on the Gold Coast that we are familiar with. Perhaps we've just seen the signs that the Gold Coast with which we've been familiar is a much lesser version of what they actually will be. Uh, time will tell, and we've been fooled by the Suns before, of course. I think four of the last five seasons they've won at least three of their first five games so um, I'll be holding fire on any definitive judgment on them until about halfway through the season but if they could be that competitive today without Raul uh, you know perhaps perhaps this is a year Gold Coast does become a top eight team so uh, reserve judgment um, our reserve judgment on both teams not just the uh, the Suns that wraps up round one. Uh, terrific start to the new season. I think it uh, pretty much had everything you could ask for. And, of course, fantastic to see crowds back filling the stands in all parts of the country, not just in one or two states. That is not the end of the action, though, because there is a fantastic AFLW season going on. And I reckon we should have a good chat about what happened on that front this weekend as well. Eight rounds done, one home and away round left before what should be a ripping final series. Uh, gee, it's been a terrific season in the AFLW, but uh, the ladder up the top, it is so tight. Let's run through the latest version of at least the top of the AFLW ladder. Brisbane Lions on top with seven wins from their eight games, just the one loss and a fantastic percentage of 218.5. So they are on 28 points. In second spot is Collingwood, just fractionally behind the lines on percentage. They are also with a 7-1 record. Couldn't quite win their game by enough to move ahead of the Lions. And then equal in third spot, separated by percentage, Adelaide, Fremantle and Melbourne. All of those teams on 6-2, making up the top six are the Kangaroos. They are on five wins and three losses. And uh, that will be the composition of the final six. Carlton, a game behind the Kangaroos, but a stack of percentage, almost 20%. So that top six, Brisbane, Collingwood, Adelaide, Fremantle, Melbourne and the Kangaroos will be who fight out this year's AFLW Premiership. But finally, some massive, massive games again this weekend. And I think clearly the most significant of them. And what a thrilling finish it was. It was Melbourne's defeat of Fremantle in Perth. What a win to the Demons. Five goals, seven, 37, defeating the Dockers, four, eight, 32. Absolute heart-stopping finish there with the ball locked up in the Fremantle forward line and Melbourne defending grimly. They did it beautifully and uh, really solidified their place in the top six and at the same time dealt what could be a mortal blow to Frio's hopes of a top two finish as well. The Dockers dropping from first to fourth. Pretty significant result. Great result. Obviously, they hung on 
this is on the back of a thrashing of Adelaide here in Melbourne on their home turf at Casey Fields. But to go over to Fremantle, uh, don't worry. It was as hot for the women as it was for the men. Incredibly difficult conditions. And uh, you know that I'm a huge rap for Fremantle. I know you are as well. They came at the Demons uh, late in the third quarter. That brilliantly named Roxy Rue snapped a goal. Momentum seemed to be going the Dockers' way, but full credit to the Demons, and they will be a genuine player in the finals. Look, this ladder is now amazing, isn't it? Brisbane get to the top of the AFL ladder when Collingwood really had a chance to um, put the percentage on the board against the Saints but they were a little bit wasteful. They dominated the game, won by, I think, 47 points. Could have been a heck of a lot more. Adelaide themselves had to really sort of gird the loins, didn't they, after a bad loss away on the road. No mugs of the Western Bulldogs, of course, but they're fantastic back home, aren't they, the Crows? And how's their scoring power? I mean, this team can really kick big scores. 12 goals, six, defeated or thrashed the doggies. Uh, three goals, four. And, I mean, you always look to Aaron Phillips when you have a big win, but their star player was Ebony Marinoff and 24 possessions, just a magnificent effort by her. Rowan, I think we've seen this weekend the greatest individual performance by anybody in the history of the AFLW. I don't know if you were able to catch Darcy Vessio for Carlton, I did, see, was, I, I did see the highlights. It was pretty amazing. It's extraordinary. She played on the ball. Um, she was dominant. Clearly the leading possession winner on the ground. She kicked five goals. She also worked back in defence. It was a, a game that Carlton got jumped in, by the way. Gold Coast kicked the first three goals. And then on the back of Vessio, they were able to kick the all-time highest score in the history of the AFLW. Without doubt, I think the greatest individual game, Darcy Vessio, is simply a marvel to watch. And anybody that is unsure about the AFLW or yet to really see AFLW at its best, watch that highlight package, watch that game. And I'm sure you'll be all turned around on the subject. Brisbane got to the top of the ladder by defeating North, who had their chances in that game, by the way. Uh, Four goals, 11 to two goals, eight. It was a tough game, but Brisbane seem up for those tough games. We remember they beat Fremantle in similar circumstances. So that's the sort of football that wins finals. And really, we're heading to a finals. We know who the final six is, but I have no idea. I don't know whether you're any closer to being able to definitively name a premiership favourite. No, I'm not. No, I think uh, a fair point about the scores. I mean, we're seeing some of the score lines this week. Obviously, Carlton 13-9, pretty amazing, but Adelaide kicking 12-6. But uh, some of the other score lines even, um, you know, we've had sides sort of regularly posting seven and eight goal tallies this year, which only a couple of years ago we would have looked at and gone, wow, that's pretty amazing. Well, these days it's pretty much par for the course because Collingwood 8-11 wasn't enough to give them enough percentage to retake that top position. Uh, Probably the other result worth noting too is Richmond posting their third win of the season over West Coast, who admittedly have struggled. But um, the Tigers posting their first ever win at home at Punt Road. And uh, plenty of people there for that game too, I noticed. So um, that was a 
a real fill-up for the Tigers. Uh, but just to show you how competitive this competition has become, Richmond and West Coast, I think uh, in terms of the ladder, certainly uh, in the band of stragglers nearer the bottom than the top. But the Eagles, uh, they're no bunnies. Um, they made a flying comeback at uh, Richmond and uh, really came close to snatching a win after the game looked done and dusted. So right through the competition this year, we've seen an improvement, even among the less capable sides, and that includes Geelong, who've done it really tough, but even they only went down by seven points to GWS. So, look, it has been a fantastic competition this year. I'd love to know, uh, and we will uh, give these details next week after the final home and away round, what the increase in terms of percentage is in scoring this season compared to last. It would be massive indeed. But it is going to be some final series. Obviously, now the men's season has started. Um, it's going to get lost in the wash to an extent. But uh, hopefully, they'll be given enough space to uh, to have their moment in the sun because they certainly deserve it this year. It has been some sort of season, hasn't it? Without, from, where I, from my perspective, without knowing the numbers, I would say just score-wise and ball movement-wise, I feel it's like a 20% better game. I really do. I, I, it's at the top end. That's why the finals are so exciting in prospect. When when two good teams play, it, it's not men's football, but I tell you what, it's great football. All right, there is a lot of football. Round eight of the women's competition. Round one of the men's competition. We've been through every game played over the weekend, but there's something we still haven't done this weekend, Finey, and that's have a good old rant. On Footyology, the rant off. Rightio, men's season's kicked off again. Uh, we're back in the stands at the games. I've been to a couple for the first time in a year and a half. Uh, it was pretty damn good, I've got to say, except for one thing, and it's not what you might think I'm talking about either. I'm pretty pissed off about it, and I'm going to have my say about that right now, Fanny, if you will count me in, please. A pissed off Rowan, pissed off Rowan coming in with one, two and ranting at three. I'm pissed off with whoever at the AFL is responsible for fan engagement, Finey. I'm tipping that was one of the several hundred positions the league didn't chop when COVID hit, but I wish it was at least filled by someone with some sort of feel for what footy fans want. I can tell you the one thing they definitely don't want, and that's wall-to-wall noise at a game for every second the crowd is inside the stadium. Nothing wrong with that during the game, of course. In fact, one of the highlights around one was simply having the crowds back inside the grounds. I was at the MCG on Thursday night and at Marvel Stadium in the outer on Saturday. And at both games, perhaps we've not been privy to it for a while, crowds of 50 and 25,000 felt like considerably more. The roars were deafening and in response to great passages of play or game-clinching goals, those noises are music to the ears. When they're not music to the ears, is always bits in between. Pre-game, at quarter time, three-quarter time, and at half time. Those moments when the action has stopped and fans want to be able to relax for a few minutes and, heaven forbid, perhaps discuss the actual game with their friends and families. This creeping trend has been happening for a fair while now and been the subject of bitter complaint for most of that time, to which those supposedly in the business of fan engagement have remained steadfastly tone deaf. So instead, we have breathlessly excited youngsters yelling at the punters to show their support for the teams. 
hosting various competitions which wouldn't look out of place on an episode of Almost Anything Goes, occasionally interviewing football people to get their thoughts on proceedings non-stop for the entire afternoon or evening. The latter would be bearable if any of it was intelligible, but such are the decibel levels at which this stuff is broadcast that it just comes across as waves of white noise, only the occasional word distinguishable, which means if you want to actually have a conversation with the person who you're sitting next to, you have to shout in their ear. No wonder half of us end up going home with a bad headache. And no, not just because our side has given up a seven-goal lead to lose by a point to a bitter rival. And now, just to rub salt into the wounds of your eardrums, they've taken to playing ear-piercing music, not just at the breaks, but after every bloody goal. At first, I only noticed this in games on the Gold Coast, and I thought, well, that figures. But now it's infiltrated arenas Australia-wide. Yes, even at the MCG. So you don't even get to hear the roars from a team's supporters when they've dobbed another major over the strains of some goddamn awful 21st century dance hit. My main question is this. Just who is this supposed to be appealing to? Do they honestly think all this crap has dragged even one extra person through the turnstiles? Although I do think there's a fair chance it's driven a few out of them again. Do we now think prospective footy fans are so shallow that playing some Katy Perry over a crappy PA system in between goals is going to mean the difference between them going to a game or not? Let me save you paying some marketing guru a couple of hundred K AFL. I can tell you definitively, it doesn't. If you want to take fan engagement seriously, I suggest you start actually talking to supporters about what they are interested in seeing. Start letting them see some great old highlights, maybe a motorcade or two of past champions. What the hell? Even a Legends game is a curtain raiser. And for Christ's sake, start talking to them about what pisses them off. Want to save some more money? I'll let you in on what was hardly that big a secret to begin with. It's exactly the sort of bullshit you're ramming down their throats and ears now. <laughs> that is spot on. I was getting angry during it, agreeing with you. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, that... why don't we take why don't we take some of these marketing gurus, strap them down? I'll go full blast Ramstein in one ear. You can choose one of your nasty bands. Do it in the other ear, and and we'll, we'll play it until their eardrums explode and the their brain their brain bleeds out. Well, it suits me. But how smart do you have to be? I mean, it's one thing in T20 where, you know, on the few occasions a run isn't scored, you know, maybe there's a bit of quiet and you feel like you need to fill a gap. The one time you know you don't need to fill a gap is after a goal's been scored in a football game. I mean, it's just, uh, it defies logic and uh, defies intelligence. And I would, I reckon you'd struggle to find a dozen fans who reckon it adds anything to their enjoyment of an afternoon or evening at the football. Bloody ridiculous, AFL. And I hope the uh, protests reach a crescendo, a virtual crescendo of noise that you have to finally take notice of. And on that note, I'm going to call you in to do your rant, Finey. Three, two, one, rant. There's some stupid saying about names not Billy or being silly. I don't even know how it goes. I've got a new one. I'm not silly. I'm not an idiot. And I know what you're up to, Fox Footy in Channel 7. And I'm going to let the whole world know, as though they don't know either. I understand last year, because of COVID-19, we had a very unusual season. Many changes to the game and many changes to how the game was broadcast. Of course there was. Commentary crews couldn't fly around Australia to cover the games. It just wasn't possible. 
So video links were set up and they were done remotely here in Melbourne. And have a guess what, what these networks, Fox Footy and Channel 7 worked out. It's a lot bloody cheaper to cover a game remotely than it is to send your teams around Australia to cover the game properly. Well, it's 2021. The planes are flying. The economy's back on good footing. We've got the vaccine rolling out. And the last case of communicable COVID was in Tasmania in about 1321. But have a guess what? The penny pinchers or counters at Fox Footy and Seven have decided to stick with the 2020 method of calling games remotely here in Melbourne. Do they admit to it? No. Thank God for Brian Taylor and his slips of the tongue as he noted a GWS player was from right here in where I am. He went to St Kevin's. Hang on, where am I? I don't know. I'm in the ether. Well, we know where you are. Hutto, we know where you were. We know where everybody was. We know that you pay one boundary rider to make it seem real and the rest of it is all smoke and mirrors. And does it affect the coverage? My fur coat it does. Football commentators need to see the whole ground. Build up the action. They can sometimes tell us what we can't see on the screens. But they also give us the feeling of the afternoon. The oppressive heat in WA was surely not felt in an air-conditioned studio in Melbourne. Of course it wasn't. Let's pretend it was. What did they do? Bring in some heaters and all wear three jumpers to get into the spirit of things? I don't bloody think so. No, it's fake. And if you want to see how it's ruining a game of football coverage, just look at the last quarter of the great win by Adelaide over Geelong. They have piped in crowd effects, piped out commentary, piped in this, piped out that. They got the friggin' levels wrong and it sounded like nobody was at the game. The mad, crazy Adelaide supporters might have only half filled Adelaide Oval, but believe you me, they would have been making some noise. Not on my TV screen. The mixer got the levels wrong and it sounded like we were back to COVID empty. So, to save a few dollars, you're going to pretend that you're at the game. Well, I can't wait, and it's going to happen till the coverage, the video, falls about three seconds or five seconds behind the actual game because of a glitch. And commentary doesn't match the what we see on TV. Or, heaven forbid, that video glitch gives us no images at all or, or some other problems, like we had a couple of years ago in round one. And then you'll be found out for what you are, frauds. Soccer doesn't do it. NFL doesn't do it. Basketball doesn't do it. But you think AFL deserves it? Well, I think we deserve better. Go to the games or don't call the games at all. Here, here. That is one of your finest rants ever, Mark Fine. And I agree 1,000%. And in fact, it just, it, it, uh, I mean, we put up with it all last year, but it, it seemed to hit home more than ever today, particularly in that uh, what should have been thrilling call of the GWS St Kilda game, which was close all afternoon. BT sounded flat as an absolute tack. Not only did he give away the game away with that comment about St Kevin's, but there was actually, I'm trying to remember who it was, there was actually a free kick paid to, I think, one of St Kilda's key forwards, and it was a interference with another player in front of the marking contest. And I can't remember whether it was either Luke Darcy or Brian Taylor calling at the time, but they actually said, uh, not quite sure who that was because it was out of shot. Well, it's not, <laughs> it's not, they actually said that. 
It's not out of shot if you're at the game. So, you know, number one, be there. But number two, if you're not going to be there, have the decency to let your audience know that you're not there. I mean, they're not that stupid. They can work it out. But uh, be upfront with it. Yeah, look, it's it's not good enough. And um, there is absolutely no reason they can't be at any of these games now. The COVID and, thing. And, all, and Rowan, you know, if they do it for long enough, over a few years, it means that young callers that might get an opportunity to call games in sort of different locales around Australia, because you need a few teams to cover a whole round, we won't get those young callers coming through on TV. They're just going to let the same three or four blokes do the whole round. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. If you're going to call from the studio and just give them the access that we've all got at home, I'd rather call it myself, to be perfectly frank. So uh, maybe there's a market in that for someone. No, particularly good rant. Well done. And I'm sure the bulk of our audience agrees with you. Uh, Well, that's it for our first review edition of the Footyology podcast for 2021. Hope you enjoyed it. Certainly a lot of footy, a lot of drama to wrap up. We'll be back with our next episode uh, next Wednesday, so tune in for that. Before we go, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Finey. Andrew's Hamburgers, I'll tell you one thing that is absolutely guaranteed. They don't do it remotely. They don't pretend. They're there cooking your burgers. And when you get one, you know that it's the authentic real deal on the premises at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. No remote kitchen somewhere else trotting out crap. It's the real deal. And same for West Point Properties. If Nick Spartels is going to build your house or do a reno, believe me, he'll be there 24-7. Well, maybe not 24-7, probably 5am to 7am for the uh, 7pm and more besides incredibly conscientious hard-working west point properties beautiful builds in the optimum time and thank you also to our newest partner at the footyology podcast stats insider bringing you the best statistical analysis of not just afl football but a host of different sports going on around the globe Have a look at their website. Uh, Some great writing on that too. And Footyology is, in fact, contributing to the Stats Insider website this year, as they indeed will be contributing to Footyology as well. So we're particularly proud of this partnership and we think it'll be prosperous for both parties and, most importantly, for you people out there because you'll have some great stats to analyse and some great footy material to read. And if you like what you read, please support us either on our ACAST supporter page or via our Patreon account for just $5 US a month. You can be a official Footyology patron. Uh, we think it's pretty good bang for your buck and, uh, and so do those who have signed up so far. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed your weekend of footy. And uh, the best news is we've got another 26 or seven weeks to do it all again. And that we will. We'll speak to you next Wednesday.